Chapter 27 of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Chapter 27 Private Letters, June 26th to August 23rd, 1862. June 26th, 2 p.m. Trent's. Yesterday I wished to advance our picket line and met with a good deal of opposition. We succeeded fully, however, and gained the point with but little loss. The enemy fought pretty hard, but our men did better. I was out there all day taking a personal direction of affairs, and remained until about 5.30 p.m. when I returned to camp, and met on my way the news that Stonewall Jackson was on his way to attack my right and rear. I rode over to Porter's soon after I reached camp and returned about 2.30 a.m. At three, I started off again and went to the front, where an attack was expected by some. Finding all quiet, I rode all along the lines and returned here. You may imagine that I am rather tired out. I think that Jackson will attempt to attack a rear. Have just received the positive information that Jackson is en route to take us in rear. You probably will not hear for some days, but do not be at all worried. General McClellan's Headquarters, June 26, 1862. Telegram, in cipher, care of Mr. Eckert, who will regard it as private and strictly confidential, and forward it privately to my wife. Dear Nell, I may not be able to telegraph or write to you for some days. There will be a great stampede, but do not be alarmed. There will be severe fighting in a day or two, but you may be sure that your husband will not disgrace you and I am confident that God will smile upon my efforts and give our arms success. You will hear that we are pursued, annihilated, etc. Do not believe it, but trust that success will crown our efforts. I tell you this, darling, only to guard against the agony you would feel if you trusted the newspaper reports. Telegram, June 27th, 1.15 p.m. Heavy firing in all directions. So far we have repulsed them everywhere. I expect wire to be cut any moment. All well and very busy. Cannot write today. Telegram, McClellan's Headquarters, June 27th. Have had a terrible fight against vastly superior numbers. Have generally held our own, and we may thank God that the Army of the Potomac has not lost its honor. It is impossible as yet to tell what the result is. I am well, but tired out. No sleep for two nights, and none tonight. God bless you. Telegram, McClellan's Headquarters, June 28th. We are all well tonight. I fear your uncle has been seriously hurt in the terrible fight of yesterday. They have outnumbered us everywhere, but we have not lost our honor. This army has acted magnificently. I thank my friends in Washington for our repulse. June 29th, 3 p.m., in the field. I send you only a line to say that I still think God is with us. We have fought a terrible battle against overwhelming numbers. We have held our own, and history will show that I have done all that man can do. June 30, 7 p.m., Turkey Bridge. Well, but worn out. No sleep for many days. We have been fighting for many days and are still at it. We have fought every day for five days. July 1st, Haxel's Plantation. The whole army is here, worn out and war-worn after a week of daily battles. I have still very great confidence in them and they in me. The dear fellows cheer me as of old as they march to certain death, 
and I feel prouder of them than ever. July 2nd, Berkeley, James River. I have only energy enough left to scroll you a few lines to say that I have the whole army here with all its materiel and guns. We are all worn out and haggard. My men need repose, and I hope we'll be allowed to enjoy it tomorrow. Your poor uncle was killed at the Battle of Gaines Mills on Friday last. We are well, but very tired. July 2nd, 11 p.m. I will now take a few moments from the rest which I really need and write at least a few words. We have had a terrible time. On Wednesday, the serious work commenced. I commenced driving the enemy on our left and by hard fighting gained my point. Before that affair was over, I received news that Jackson was probably about to attack my right. I galloped back to camp, took a fresh horse, and went over to Porter's camp, where I remained all night making the best arrangements I could, and returned about daybreak to look out for the left. On Thursday afternoon, Jackson began his attack on McCall, who was supported by Porter. Jackson being repulsed, I went over there in the afternoon and remained until 2 or 3 a.m., I was satisfied that Jackson would have force enough next morning to turn Porter's right, so I removed all the wagons, heavy guns, etc. during the night and caused Porter to fall back to a point nearer the force on the other side of the Chickahominy. This was most handsomely effected, all our material being saved. The next day, Porter was attacked in his new position by the whole force of Jackson, Longstreet, Ewell, Hill, and Whiting. I sent what supports I could, but was at the same time attacked on my own front and could only spare seven brigades. With these we held our own at all points after most desperate fighting. It was on this day that your poor uncle, Colonel Russell, was killed, gallantly leading his regiment. He was struck in the breast and died in a few hours. Klitz fell that day also. John Reynolds was taken prisoner. I was forced that night to withdraw Porter's force to my side of the Chickahominy, and therefrom to make a very dangerous and difficult movement to reach the James River. I must say good night now, for I am very tired, and may require all my energies tomorrow. July 4th, Berkeley. You will understand before this reaches you the glorious yet fearful events which have prevented me from writing. We have fine weather today, which is drying the ground rapidly. I was quite stampeded yesterday just before your father left. A report came to me that the enemy were advancing in overwhelming numbers and that none of my orders for placing the troops in position and reorganizing them had been carried out. I at once rode through the camps, clear in front of them, to let them see that there was no danger. They began to cheer as usual and called out that they were all right and would fall to the last man for Little Mac. I saw where the trouble was, halted all the commands, looked at the ground, and made up my mind what the true position was. Started Smith at a double-quick to seize the key point, followed by a battery of horse artillery at a gallop. They went up most beautifully, opened on the enemy, drove him off after 18 rounds, and finally held the place. I pushed Slocum's division up in support, hurried off Heinzelman's corps to take its position on Franklin's left, supported by Keyes still further to the left, and came back to camp a little before dark with a light heart for the first time in many days. I am ready for an attack now. Give me twenty-four hours even, and I will defy all secession. The movement has been a magnificent one. I have saved all our materiel, have fought every day for a week, and marched every night. You can't tell how nervous I became. 
Everything seemed like the opening of artillery, and I had no rest, no peace, except when in front with my men. The duties of my position are such as often to make it necessary for me to remain in the rear. It is an awful thing. I have re-established the playing of bands, beating the calls, etc., by way of keeping the men in good spirits, and have ordered the national salute to be fired today at noon from the camp of each corps. I have some more official letters to write, so I must close this, and must soon start to ride around the lines. July, blank, Monday, 7.30 a.m. I have had a good, refreshing night's sleep. We are to have another very hot day. It is already apparent. I am writing in my shirt sleeves and with tent walls raised, etc. Our army has not been repulsed. We fought every day against greatly superior numbers, and were obliged to retire at night to new positions that we could hold against fresh troops. The army behaved magnificently. Nothing could have been finer than its conduct. July 8th. The day is insufferably hot, intense, so much so that I have suspended all work on the part of the men. I have written a strong, frank letter to the President, which I send by your father. If he acts upon it, the country will be saved. I will send you a copy tomorrow, as well as of the other important letters which I wish you to keep as my record. They will show, with the others you have, that I was true to my country, that I understood the state of affairs long ago, and that, had my advice been followed, we should not have been in our present difficulties. I have done the best I could. God has disposed of events as to him seem best. I submit to his decrees with perfect cheerfulness, and as sure as he rules, I believe that all will yet be for the best. Midnight. Everything is quiet now. None awake, save the sentinels. I am alone with you and the Almighty, whose good and powerful hand has saved me and my army. The terrible moments I have undergone of late I regard as part of the cross I have to bear, and with God's help will endure to the end when my task is finished. I place myself in his hands, and with a sincere heart say his will be done. Oh, how ardently I pray for rest. Rest with you. I care not where, only that I may be alone with you. We are to have service at headquarters tomorrow morning, and I will endeavor to have it every Sunday hereafter. Footnote. The following order will be read with interest in this connection. General Orders No. 7. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Washington, September 6, 1861. The Major General Commanding desires and requests that in future there may be a more perfect respect for the Sabbath on the part of his command. We are fighting in a holy cause and should endeavor to deserve the benign favor of the Creator. Unless in the case of an attack by the enemy or some other extreme military necessity, it is commended to commanding officers that all work shall be suspended on the Sabbath, that no unnecessary movements shall be made on that day, that the men shall, as far as possible, be permitted to rest from their labors, that they shall attend divine service after the customary Sunday morning inspection, and that officers and men shall alike use their influence to ensure the utmost decorum and quiet on that day. The general commanding regards this as no idle form. One day's rest in seven is necessary to men and animals. More than this, the observance of the holy day of the God of mercy and of battles is our sacred duty. George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. End footnote. 
July 9th, 9.30 p.m., Berkeley. I telegraphed you briefly this afternoon that I thought Secesh had retired. This opinion seemed to be fully confirmed, at least to the extent of his having fallen back a certain distance. He is not within six or seven miles of us, even with his cavalry, and considerably further with his infantry. I am not sorry, on the whole, that he has gone, for the reason that it will enable my men to rest tranquilly just what they need. I do not expect to receive many reinforcements for some time. Even Burnside's men are halted at Fortress Monroe by order of the President. His Excellency was here yesterday, and left this morning. He found the army anything but demoralized or dispirited, in excellent spirits. I do not know to what extent he has profited by his visit. Not much, I fear. I will enclose with this a copy of a letter I handed him, which I would be glad to have you preserve carefully as a very important record. My camp is now immediately on the banks of the James River in the woods. 7 a.m., 10th. Rose a little before 6th. I do not know what paltry trick the administration will play next. I have honestly done the best I could. I leave it to others to decide whether that was the best that could have been done, and if they find anyone who can do better, and perfectly willing to step aside and give way. I would not for worlds go through that horrid work again, when, with my heart full of care, I had to meet everybody with a cheerful smile and look as light-hearted as though nothing were at stake. Telegram, Berkeley, July 10, 1862 We are all very well and in good spirits. Secesh has gone off and left us for the present. Klitz is certainly in Richmond, recovering from his wounds. If properly supported, I will yet take Richmond. Am not in the least discouraged. Am in better health than for many months. Your father returned to Washington two days ago. July 12th. I am sure that God will bring us together again in this world, but whether so or not, we will try so to live that we may be reunited in that world where we can be happy forever and never again be parted. In this weary world, I have seen but little happiness save what I have enjoyed with you. How very happy our first year of married life was when we were together. So the baby has more teeth? I suppose when I come back I shall find her handling a knife and fork. When will she begin to say a word or two? I hope she will not begin to do much before I come home. I want to have the fun and satisfaction of watching her progress in life and the development of her accomplishments. I enclose with this letter from Stanton and my reply, which I want you to preserve very carefully with my other archives, as it may be important. July 13th, Sunday, 7.45 a.m. I have ordered all labor suspended today to give the men a chance to think of all they have gone through. We are to have service today by the chaplain of Gregg's Regiment, Pennsylvania Cavalry. Next Sunday, I think I will invite Mr. Neal to preach for us, provided there is any attendance today. I enclose this in an envelope with some letters I send you. One from Bishop McIlvain, which will gratify you, I know. Another from some poor fellow in Indiana who has named his child after me. If you choose to send out some little present to it, well and good. 1.30 p.m. Had service this morning by the chaplain of Gregg's regiment, the Reverend Mr. Egan, an Episcopal clergyman of Philadelphia. There never was such an army, but there have been plenty of better generals. When I spoke about being repulsed, I meant our failure to take Richmond. In no battle were we repulsed. We always at least held our own on the field, 
if we did not beat them. I still hope to get to Richmond this summer, unless the government commits some extraordinarily idiotic act. But I have no faith in the administration, and shall cut loose from public life the very moment my country can dispense with my services. Don't be alarmed about the climate. It is not at all bad yet, and we are resting splendidly. The men look better every day. So you want to know how I feel about Stanton and what I think of him now? I will tell you with the most perfect frankness. I think I may do the man injustice. God grant that I may be wrong, for I hate to think that humanity can sink so low. But my opinion is just as I have told you. He has deceived me once. He never will again. Are you satisfied now, lady mine? I ever will hereafter trust your judgment about men. Your woman's tact and your pure heart make you a better judge than my dull apprehension. I remember what you thought of Stanton when you first saw him. I thought you were wrong. I now know you were right. Enough of the creature. Since I reached here, I have received about 8,500 or 9,000 fresh troops. My losses in the battles will not be over 12,000. Burnside has 8,000, about, at Fortress Monroe, where he was detained by order of the President. He has been in Washington and will probably be here himself tonight, when I will know the views of the President. The probability is that I will attack again very soon, as soon as some losses are supplied. I also wish first to get off all the sick and wounded. 11.30 p.m. Have just been at work dictating my report of the recent operations. Got as far as bringing Porter back across the Chickahominy. Please reply to Mr. Blank and say that I thank him and feel deeply grateful for his trust and kind feeling, and that I am glad to say that there is no reason for despondency on account of my present position. I flatter myself that this army is a greater thorn in the side of the rebellion than ever, and I most certainly, with God's blessing, intend to take Richmond with it. I trust that we have passed through our darkest time and that God will smile upon us and give us victory. July 15th, 7.30 a.m. I was amused at a couple of telegrams yesterday urging me to the offensive, as if I were unwilling to take it myself. It is so easy for people to give advice. It costs nothing. But it is a little more difficult for poor me to create men and means, and to wipe out by mere wishes the forces of the enemy. I confess that I sometimes become provoked. I had quite an adventure in a small way last night that was rather ludicrous. I yesterday sent a flag of truce after some wounded men. Schweitzer going on the boat. Well, it appears that he and the doctor on board, between them, allowed a young English nobleman to come down with them, and Raymond was discreet enough to bring him up to headquarters, and was apparently quite proud of his prize, wished me to see him. Upon inquiry, I found that he came from Richmond had no papers or passports, save a pass from the Secesh Secretary of War, and acknowledged that he had surreptitiously slipped into Richmond a couple of weeks ago. This was a pretty kettle of fish. I did not like to hang the young rascal for a spy, for fear of getting up a row with England. I determined he should not go through, so this morning I sent him back to Secessia, and told him to try it again at his peril. The young man was exceedingly disgusted, and has, I presume, by this time come to the conclusion that the fact of being an Englishman is not everywhere a sufficient passport. July 17th, A.M. Generals Dix and Burnside are both here, 
Burnside is very well, and if the President permits, will bring me large, respectably, reinforcements. I am quite well today, a little disgusted at the stupidity of the people in Washington. You need not be at all alarmed as to my being deceived by them. I know that they are ready to sacrifice me at any moment. I shall not be at all surprised to have some other general made commander of the whole army, or even to be superseded here. 7 p.m. You ask me when I expect to reach Richmond and whether I shall act on the offensive this summer? I am at the mercy of the government. After the first 9,000 or 10,000 men sent to me, they have withheld all further reinforcements. Burnside is halted at Fortress Monroe. With his own troops and those of Hunter, he can bring me some 20,000 troops, but I have no idea of the intentions of the government. If I am reinforced to that extent, I will try it again with the least possible delay. I am not at all in favor of baking on the banks of this river, but am anxious to bring matters to an issue. You need not be at all alarmed lest any of these people flatter me into the belief that they are my friends. It's mighty little flattery or comfort I get out of any of them in these days, I assure you. So you like my letter to the President? I feel that I did my duty in writing it, though I apprehend it will do no good whatever. But it clears my conscience to have spoken plainly at such a time. You do not feel one bit more bitterly towards those people than I do. I do not say much about it, but I fear they have done all that cowardice and folly can do to ruin our poor country, and the blind people seem not to see it. It makes my blood boil when I think of it. I cannot resign so long as the fate of the Army of the Potomac is entrusted to my care. I owe a great duty to this noble set of men, and that is the only feeling that retains me. I fear that my day of usefulness to the country is past at least under this administration. I hope and trust that God will watch over, guide, and protect me. I accept most resignedly all he has brought upon me. Perhaps I have really brought it on myself, for while striving conscientiously to do my best, it may well be that I have made great mistakes that my vanity does not permit me to perceive. When I see so much self-blindness around me, I cannot arrogate to myself greater clearness of vision and self-examination. I did have a terrible time during that week, for I stood alone without anyone to help me. I felt that on me rested everything, and I felt how weak a thing poor mortal erring man is. I felt it sincerely, and shall never, I trust, forget the lesson. It will last me to my dying day. I am very well now, perfectly well, and ready for any amount of fatigue that can be imagined. July 18th, 7.45 a.m. We are to have another very hot day, I fancy. No air stirring, and the atmosphere close and murky. I don't at all wish to spend the summer on the banks of this river. We will fry or bake. If our dear government will show some faint indication of brains or courage, we can finish the work in a short time. I am so sorry that poor Prince is going blind. It is a great pity. I flattered myself that when I become a poor blind soldier, a second Belisarius, Prince would probably lead me about. 9 p.m. I am inclined now to think that the President will make Halleck commander of the army, and that the first pretext will be seized to supersede me in command of this army. Their game seems to be to withhold reinforcements, and then to relieve me for not advancing, well knowing that I have not the means to do so. If they supersede me in the command of the Army of the Potomac, 
I will resign my commission at once. If they appoint Halleck commanding general, I will remain in command of this army as long as they will allow me to, provided the army is in danger and likely to play an active part. I cannot remain as a subordinate in the army I once commanded any longer than the interests of my own Army of the Potomac require. I owe no gratitude to anyone but my own soldiers here, none to the government or to the country. I have done my best for the country. I expect nothing in return. They are my debtors, not I theirs. If things come to pass as I anticipate, I shall leave the service with a sad heart for my country, but a light one for myself. But one thing keeps me at my work, love for my country and my army. Surely no general had ever better cause to love his men than I have to love mine. Confidential to William H. Aspinwall, Esquire, Berkeley, July 19, 1862. My dear Mr. Aspinwall, I again find myself in a position such that I may ere long have to tax your friendship for me. I have reason to believe that General Halleck is to be made Commander-in-Chief of the Army, and, if I am not mistaken, I think I detect the premonitory symptoms of still further changes. I can get no replies from Washington to any of my dispatches. Burnside and his troops are taken out of my hands. I receive no reinforcements, and no hope of them is held out to me. The game, apparently, is to deprive me of the means of moving, and then to cut my head off for not advancing. In other words, it is my opinion that I will be removed from the command of this army in a short time. The present feeling is, I think, merely a continuation of the inveterate persecution that has pursued me since I landed on the peninsula, weakening my command so as to render it inadequate to accomplish the end in view, and then to hold me responsible for the result. I am quite weary of this. If I am superseded in the command of the Army of the Potomac, I shall resign my commission in the service feeling that I can no longer be of use. On the contrary, only in the way. Looking forward to that event, my main object in writing to you is to ask you to be kind enough to cast your eyes about you to see whether there is anything I can do in New York to earn a respectable support for my family. I have no exaggerated ideas or expectations. All I wish is some comparatively quiet pursuit, for I really need rest. Pretty much everything I had has been sacrificed in consequence of my re-entering the service, and when I leave it, I must commence anew and work for my support. That I am quite willing to do. I know that I need not apologize for troubling you in regard to this matter. Please regard this as confidential, except with Mr. Alsop and Mr. Bartlett. I am, my dear sir, most sincerely your friend, George B. McClellan. July 20th a.m. Went on the hospital steamer to see Klitz yesterday. He is doing very well. I saw all the officers and men on board and tried to cheer them up. The visit seemed to do them a great deal of good, and it would have done you good to see how the poor suffering fellows brightened up when they saw me. I wonder whether the baby will know me. I fear that she will be afraid of me and won't come to me. Would not that be mortifying? I hope the dear little thing will take to me kindly. I should feel terribly if she should refuse to have anything to do with me. Bless her sweet little ladyship. She must be a great comfort to you, and we will be happier than any kings and queens on earth if we three are permitted to be together again, and that before May changes much. 
I want so much to see her again while she is a baby, before she begins to talk and walk and be human. P.M. Which dispatch of mine to Stanton do you allude to? The telegraphic one in which I told him that if I saved the army I owed no thanks to anyone in Washington, and that he had done his best to sacrifice my army? It was pretty frank, and quite true. Of course they will never forgive me for that. I knew it when I wrote it. But as I thought it possible that it might be the last I ever wrote, it seemed better to have it exactly true. The President, of course, has not replied to my letter, and never will. His reply may be, however, to avail himself of the first opportunity to cut my head off. I see it reported in this evening's papers that Halleck is to be the new General-in-Chief. Now let them take the next step and relieve me, and I shall at once more be a free man. Later. I believe it is now certain that Halleck is Commander-in-Chief. I have information this evening from Washington from private sources, which seem to render it quite certain. You will have to cease directing your letters to me as commanding United States Army, and let the address be commanding the Army of the Potomac. Quite as proud a title as the other, at all events. I shall have to remove the three stars from my shoulders and put up with two. Eh bien, it is all for the best, I doubt not. I hope Halleck will have a more pleasant time in his new position than I did when I held it. This, of course, fixes the future for us. I cannot remain permanently in the army after the slight. I must, of course, stick to this army as long as I am necessary to it. I have tried to do my best, honestly and faithfully, for my country. That I have, to a certain extent, failed, I do not believe it to be my fault, though my self-conceit probably blinds me to many errors that others see. But... One useful lesson I have learned to despise earthly honors and popular favors as vanities. I am content. I have not disgraced my name, nor will my child be ashamed of her father. Thank God for that. I shall try to get something to do which will make you comfortable, and it will be most pleasant and in the best taste for me that we should lead hereafter a rather quiet and retired life. It will not do to parade the tattered remnants of my departed honors to the gaze of the world. Let us try to live for each other and our child, and to prepare for the great change that sooner or later must overtake us all. I have had enough of earthly honors and place. I believe I can give up all and retire to privacy once more, a better man than when we gave up our dear little home with wild ideas of serving the country. I feel that I have paid all that I owe her. I am sick and weary of all this business. I am tired of serving fools. God help my country. He alone can save it. It is grating to have to serve under the orders of a man whom I know by experience to be my inferior. But so let it be. God's will be done. All will turn out for the best. My trust is in God, and I cheerfully submit to His will. July 22, 7.30 a.m. While I think of it, be very careful what you telegraph, and tell your father the same thing. I have the proof that my secretary reads all my private telegrams. If he has read my private letters to you also, his ears must have tingled somewhat. I am about doing a thing today which will, I suppose, cause the abolitionists and my other friends to drive the last nail in my official coffin. You know that our sick and wounded in Richmond are suffering terribly for want of proper food, medicines, and hospital supplies. I have ordered a boatload of all such things. Lemons, tea, sugar, brandy, underclothing, lint, bandages, chloroform, quinine, ice, etc., etc., 
to be sent up to General Lee today, to be used at his discretion for the sick and wounded of both armies. I know he would not and could not receive them for our men alone. Therefore, I can only do it in the way I propose, and trust to his honor to apply them properly, half and half. I presume I will be accused now of double-dyed treason, giving aid and comfort to the enemy, etc. What do you think of it? Am I right or wrong? I see that the Pope bubble is likely to be suddenly collapsed. Stonewall Jackson is after him, and the young man who wanted to teach me the art of war will, in less than a week, either be in full retreat or badly whipped. He will begin to learn the value of entrenchments, lines of communication, and of retreat, bases of supply, etc. July 22nd. It is a lovely afternoon, bright and sunny, a pleasant breeze blowing, and everything charming to the eye. The old river looks beautiful today, as bright as when John Smith Esquire and my dusky ancestress, Madame Pocahontas Rolf, Nepauten, paddled her canoe and children somewhere in this vicinity. If it were not for the accompaniments and present surroundings, it would delight me beyond measure to have you here to see the scenery and some of the fine old residences which stud its banks. The men of two or three generations ago must have lived in great state and comfort here. I suspect they had a pretty good time, interrupted only by the chills and fever, bad luck in gambling and horse racing, and the trouble of providing for their woolly-headed dependents. July 23rd. There is now no doubt about Hollick being made commander-in-chief. The other change will, I feel sure, follow in a very few days, perhaps a week. Popularity, Nell, is a humbug. What good has been done to me or to the country by my popularity in the North? It has not prevented my enemies from withholding all support from me. It did not hinder them from almost ruining my army. It brings me not a man. It will not be worth a breath of air to prevent Halleck being put in my place. July 24th. Your father arrived this evening. Took a long ride in the sun today. Our men look better than ever, like real veterans now, tough, brown, and fearless. I hear nothing yet from Washington, and must confess that I am as indifferent as possible to what they do. If they reinforce me, I am ready to fight harder than ever, and will give Secesh a sharp rub for his capital. If they make it necessary for me to resign, I am quite ready to do so. I presume I shall learn something tomorrow about the destination of Burnside. I can then enable you to guess how matters will go. I am yet in complete ignorance, being no longer taken into the confidence of the powers that be. You ask me whether my self-respect will permit me to remain longer in the service after Halleck's appointment. It will permit me to remain only so long as the welfare of the Army of the Potomac demands, no longer. Don't mind these things. I bide my time. Whatever God sends me, be it defeat and loss of rank, or be it success and honor, I will cheerfully submit to. May God help me in this. July 25th. Started out early in the morning to review Porter's Corps, and spent several hours at it in the hot sun. Then I went to visit the wounded from Richmond. Then I heard that Halleck was here, and was obliged to return to see my master. I think Halleck will support me and give me the means to take Richmond. I am not to be relieved from the command of this army, at least, that does not seem to be the present intention. July 26th, 9 p.m. From 9 this morning until 6.30 this evening, I have been among the sick and wounded. 
More than a thousand came from Richmond last night and were in the steamer. I saw every one of the poor fellows, talked to them all, heard their sorrows, tried to cheer them up, and feel that I have done my duty towards them. If you could have seen the poor, maimed, brave fellows, some at the point of death, brightened up when they saw me and caught my hand, it would have repaid you for much of our common grief and anxiety. It has been the most harrowing day I ever passed, yet a proud one for me too. I realized how these men love and respect me, and I trust that many a poor fellow will sleep more soundly and feel more happily tonight for my visit to them. It makes me feel that they are not forgotten or neglected when their general comes to see them and console them. My men love me very much. What a terrible responsibility this imposes upon me. I pray that God will give me strength to bear it and the wisdom to do what is best. It is an awful load that is imposed upon me by the trust and affection of these poor fellows. End of Part 1, Chapter 27